If you have a copy of God's word, let's go to Psalm 119. Uh, We're going to be back in here this morning plowing through the scriptures. um, And and God's word ministers to us. We sang this morning, um, Speak, O Lord. That's a song all about our need for the word of God. We talked about, uh, we sang in a song, the living rain. Well, biblically, that's the word of God, right? It falls from heaven like rain. It's not the spirit, it's the word. That's what falls from heaven like rain. And that's what transforms us, right? So it doesn't return void. And so we go back to the word over and over because it's what we desperately need. We need the word of God to speak to our lives. We need to know God in order to walk with God. And so I trust that whether this is your first time here or you've been coming for years, that the opening of the word of God is the highlight of your week. Not because I'm talking. (laughs) Clearly not because of that, right? Because we're opening the word of God. And we're sitting under it as a congregation and saying, God, do your work. Teach us, minister to us, grow us by your grace. So this is what we all desperately need. Let's pray very quickly and ask the Lord to care for us now. Father, we are turning to your word and we need your help. So we cry out to you, even as the psalmist does over and over in Psalm 119, teach me, make me understand, open my eyes. Father, we need you this morning. We are distracted. Oh God, we... We come today with trials in our lives. We're distracted by tiredness, by hunger, by financial pressures, by politics, by arguments we had in our home this morning. And we need you, Lord. We need you by the power of your spirit to help us focus rightly on your word, to be diligent listeners to the word of God. So Father, would you care for us as a church? Would you speak to us? We believe that when the word is opened, God speaks. But Lord, we also know that we can have hard hearts and calloused hearts and distracted hearts. And so we plead with you to remove those things this morning and help us, Father, by your grace, to learn of you and to know how to live rightly for your glory. And in Christ's name, amen. Anybody in here a fan of uh, HGTV, Home and Garden Television? Anybody? All right, some, some diehards and other people are like, what is that? Um, right? There, HGTV is a, a very interesting phenomenon. Um, it's, it kind of messes with your brain um, because you watch a 30-minute show and you think, I can do that. Right? Like, that's easy. I mean, that was just so simple. Um, And then to make it worse, you might pull up Pinterest and read something there, and then you just, I've got it, right? I don't need to go to school. I don't need a contractor. I can tear my house down and rebuild it. (laughs) And and not only do you think you can do it on your own, but you think it's going to take you about 45 minutes. Because in the show, it took 30, right? So a friend of mine, uh, a contractor friend, he said, you know, um, I went to a guy's house. He wanted a 1,700 square foot um, addition put on his house. So that's, that's a big addition. And he wanted it done in three weeks before Christmas. And he literally said, well, it's what they do on TV all the time. And, and the guy's like, do you not understand? Like, they stage that right? They, they make it so that all you see is the highlights of the job, right? They're not showing you that this was actually a six-month procedure, um, but that's really, that's really how we think about uh, home projects, you know, the DIY culture. 
is it's going to be quick and easy, and then you get into it, and you're like, they lied to me, right? That, that, that guy on TV, he said it would be these three steps, and it's 40 steps later, and you're still not done, and you feel like you've been duped. But you know, it's interesting that the HGTV culture regarding home projects is really how we want to live all of life, quick and easy, right? Oh, man, massive transformation with no work. I mean, isn't that what we love? We want to just flip the switch, everything changes, whether that be appearance, whether that be your house projects, whether it be your walk with God, right? We just want an easy fix. We want it to be this like overnight change, very little effort, very little pain, and we're all good. Well, the word of God is going to both confront us and comfort us this morning uh, because spiritually a makeover is possible by God's grace, um, but it's not going to be easy, but it is entirely doable because we have the word of God and the grace of God and the power of God. And so sometimes you might read a book like 40 Days of Purpose or Every Day is Friday or Your Good Life Now. And you can think, oh, if I just put this into place, I'll be like super Christian. I'll have it all together. God will bless me like he's supposedly blessing that person, right? We want a quick fix. We want an easy answer. And actually the word of God is so much better than that. Because in the scriptures, it's not a quick and easy fix. But at the end of the day, you get God, right? You get God. And that's what we're going after. We want him. So let's read Psalm 119, 129 to 136 again this morning. I hope you have a copy of God's word or an app or something and follow along as we read the scriptures. Psalm 119 verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears. Because people do not keep your law. If there's one central truth I think God's word is going to press into us this morning, it is this. When you long for the word, you'll know the goodness of God. When you long for the word, the word of God, you'll know the goodness of God. And those those two pieces of the puzzle are massively important for us this morning. We must long for the word if we'll ever know the goodness of God. God. So let's look at this. It breaks down into two very simple points. Number one, long for the word. We see the psalmist start off in verse 129 through 131, driving home this idea of what it means to long for the scriptures. Look at how he begins. Your testimonies are wonderful. You should meditate on that for a moment. What does it mean that the, the, the testimonies of God are wonderful? Well, I think simply put, we can say the word is wonderful because the God of the word is wonderful, right? Since God is who he says he is, then this word that reveals him is profoundly rich. The word testimony 
is, is one that you're probably familiar with. It has the idea of bearing witness, right? We still use that word in a court of law, right? A testimony. What is it? It's to, it's to bear witness about something. So what does this book do? It bears witness about who? About God. And since God is infinitely wonderful, he says your testimonies are what? They're wonderful. They're wonderful. But it's interesting that the word wonderful does not only mean amazing as we typically understand it, as, as phenomenal, but in the scriptures, wonderful also has the idea that it's beyond our comprehension. So it's, it's this both and. It's like standing before the Grand Canyon and you're fascinated, but you don't really get it. Right? You're like, wow. Wow. Right? Or anybody following the news in Hawaii this week? Like, there's amazing video of all the, the lava in a volcano disappearing because <laughs> it's showing up everywhere else, right? And, and Caitlin and I were looking at that and she said, I don't ever think about what happens underneath the earth. And most of us don't, we just walk on it. But it's like there's something happening down there. And then when your road breaks apart and lava comes out, you're like, okay, that's what's happening. You know, run the other direction, right? It's wonderful in the sense of awe-inspiring, but also in the sense of complex. And in the scripture, when we see the wondrousness of God, it's, it's beautiful and it's complex at the same time. If you flip back to verse 18 of Psalm 119, it's another use of the same word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. So he's saying, God, in order to actually understand the true wonderfulness of you, I need your help. And we're going to see that over and over in this section this morning, that he's going to cry out to God, you are wonderful. Your revelation is wonderful. But God, I need you. Because when I stand before this wonderful revelation, I'm kind of ignorant. I'm kind of helpless. I really don't know where to turn. And so he's saying, this revelation of God is truly awe-inspiring. It's truly glorious. But I'm going to need your help to do it. So we're going to get there in a few minutes. But look at what he says immediately after that. And we're going to notice this over and over in this section. Your, your testimonies are wonderful. <laughs> so my soul keeps them. Or therefore, my soul keeps them. You know, the wonderfulness of the word demands we obey it. That we, if we really believe that God is who he says he is, and that he is, he is the creator and owner of all things, that he is the redeemer of our souls, that he is who he says he is, and he's done what he says he's done, guess what? We'll obey him. We'll obey him. I've shared, this with you, I've shared this with you before that I read somewhere that in my act of disobedience, right, when I, when I disregard God and I go my own way, in that moment, I'm a functional atheist. God, I really don't believe you. I don't believe you're true. I don't believe you're good. I'm going my own way, right? I don't believe you're wonderful. I believe I know better. So I'm going to go my own way, disregard God. Isn't that atheism? Disregarding God, not caring about him at all. Maybe you would say that's more agnosticism. That's fine. I'll give you that. But that's the point. He says, if I really believe you are who you say you are, then what's my longing? My longing is to obey you. You see, this is just true for all of life, folks. If you really believe in something, it affects your actions. Haven't we said this almost every week for the last five months? If you really believe something to be true, it changes you. 
Like, there's just no way around it. Whether it's a silly hobby that you enjoy, and I say silly because I have silly hobbies too, okay? Something that you enjoy that nobody else enjoys, but it's really wonderful to you, so it affects your behavior, right? Because it's, it's something that is truly delightful for you. So whatever it is in life, whatever you esteem as wonderful, it changes your behavior. The psalmist here says, the word of God is wonderful to me. So what's the logical conclusion? I obey it. I follow you. And to actually say that you believe God to be wonderful and his word to be wonderful and to disregard him, you're a liar. You can't do both. I mean, that, that is as foolish as somebody who comes in for marital counseling, okay, and says to me, I love my wife and my family, but I beat them every day. And that same person is, oh, I love them, I love them, I love them. No, no, you don't. You love yourself. You love yourself, and your actions prove what you really love, right? So the hypocrisy shows itself. And it's the same with our walk with God. If I actually say I love God and I find him to be infinitely wonderful and I love to come into this, this gathering, the church, and worship him, but I go and live my life like a pagan, what am I saying? He's not wonderful. Everything else is wonderful. And so the psalmist is just so clear. Your testimonies, that which reveals God is wonderful, and I long to obey you. So he longs for the word and it affects his lifestyle of obedience. Look at the next verse. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Here we see the word is wonderful when it's understood. It's got to be understood. And I don't mean some mystic understanding, some super elite spiritual understanding. It's just you need God to know the word of God. So you go to the scriptures and you plead with God to reveal himself to you through this book. That's the word unfolding. It's like something that's being opened up. It's closed. You can't understand it. You can't comprehend it. It's like a book that you've never opened. Like you could have that textbook on your counter, but if you never open it, you're not going to pass the test. Right? It's, it's closed. And he says the word, it, need, it needs to be unfolded, unpacked, revealed, and when it does, when it does, it does something. It says it gives light. You can look back and maybe even on the same page, verse 105. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. Your word is what? A lamp to my feet. And we talked about how the two words there in 105 for lamp and light was one was a dim lighting the next step of your path. And one was a word like for the sun rising. It does both. The word is a lamp and a light. As we understand the scriptures, it guides both the very next step you're going to take, and it also guides the path, the trajectory of your life. He says the word of God does that when it's unfolded. It gives light. And he continues to define it for us when he says it imparts understanding to the simple. So here, the idea of being given light is what? Well, it gives you understanding for life and godliness. It's interesting that, um, that when it says understanding to the simple, he's not putting any particular person down. It's all humanity. You know, I, I love that. It just kind of, instead of saying, well, some of you are dumb and some aren't, he just says, the word of God gives understanding to the simple. And if you don't agree with me, go read 1 Corinthians 1. We're all simpletons. 
right? We go our own way. We do our own thing. We're like Eve from last Sunday's sermon and Adam, right? I know better than God. What foolishness. We don't know better than God, but in our simplicity, in our foolishness, we we often do. So we go our own way. And he says, the word of God imparts understanding to the simple. You know, folks, this somewhat vexes me because I was just meditating on this throughout the week. The question came to me, where do we go for our understanding? That's an important question for all of us to answer. When he says the word of God gives understanding, we go, amen, yeah, hallelujah. What about tomorrow morning? Where do we go for understanding? Like, where do we turn to? And I I just, I kind of sat there and I went, Lord, I think we go to everywhere else. We go to a myriad of wells that have no water. And we keep trying to draw our bucket and we wonder why we're coming up empty. And we're like, this, is, this just isn't working. I don't know what the problem is. Well, the problem is we're going everywhere else to get understanding, but here. So I'll just pick on a few areas, okay? When Christians look for advice on parenting, where do they go? It's scary. Straight up scary because they don't go to this book. So we take psychology, we take, we take a little bit of worldly wisdom, we take a little bit of this and of that, and then we throw a Bible verse on it and we call it scripture. Wow, we are, we're not getting our understanding from this, right? Or you take, you take um, how to handle conflict. How to handle conflict. Well, if he's a jerk to me, I'll be a jerk back to him, prove that I'm a bigger man, and I'll stand my ground, And maybe I'll stand my ground longer than he stands his ground or she stands her ground and I'll win. And then we put a little bit of Christian in there and voila, we have an answer. And we have no understanding from this book. When it comes to conflicts in your marriage, just go to whatever journal you can find or whatever Facebook article you think agrees with you. And then you say, yeah, this is what God wants me to do. And then I love this. The classic answer, well, I just prayed about it. That's the Christian trump card for don't, don't contradict me. I prayed about it. Well, did you open your Bible? Did you study the scriptures? Because you might pray and agree with yourself, but disagree with God. So open this book and say, God, change me. I need your understanding because I don't just want to come away with my thoughts and then say, well, clearly God agrees with me because folks, 99 times out of 100, God won't agree with you. You're going to have to conform your ways to his. And, And we live in a culture that is in every way disregarding God. Can I just, can I throw this out there? And I, I might step on some toes, but I'm good at that. Um, meaning I put my foot in my mouth sometimes. We live in a culture that denies entirely moral culpability. You're not guilty of your sin. It wasn't your fault that you did what you did. You're an effect, you're, you're an effect of your environment. So we need to somehow figure out how to change your environment to change your behavior. Now, there is benefits to secular psychology. I'm not, I'm not slamming all that is done in that movement. But the majority of the time, they're not going to give you what this book says. When you go to a magazine at the grocery store to figure out how to better help yourself, 
when you go to some even psychological journal to get your answers, you're not going to get answers from this book because we live in a society that has denied God. And they've not only denied God, they've denied the fact that we are sinners who need a savior. And so they're not going to tell you God's instructions. They're going to tell you something to make you feel better about yourself. So you keep coming back to their source, you know, of wisdom. And folks, if we don't go to God for understanding, we'll be a mess. And the sad reality is we keep going back to those same sources because frankly, we want to hear that wisdom more than the word of God. We want it, we're like, the, like the, the, the people in the book of Timothy that Paul said, they just want their ears tickled. We want somebody to tell us that we're really not that bad, that it's really our spouse's fault, that it's really our boss's fault, that it's really our parents' fault, it's really somebody else's. And scripture's gonna get in and confront us. And it says it's gonna give you understanding, it's gonna give you light. You may not always like it, but it will be good. Brothers and sisters, may we be a church that actually goes to the word of God. And I actually, one more comment here. I don't think we go to the word of God sometimes simply because we're lazy. It's just hard. We are the culture of immediate gratification, aren't we? I mean, immediate gratification is the God of this age. Whatever can make me happy in the moment, I want it. And we go to scripture, we have to labor and pray and meditate and get rid of all distractions. And it's just hard work and we're lazy. Not only that, we read the Bible selfishly. We just want God to solve our problems. We don't want God to tell us that we're the problem. Right? So we read the Bible selfishly. At the end of the day, we really don't want to know God. We want God to be our lucky rabbit's foot that we pull out and rub when things aren't going well. And here the word says, the word of God gives light and it will give understanding to the simple, but you must seek him in his way. And brothers and sisters, we have for far too long abused this book and made it our genie in a bottle that we run to for a crisis. And that is not how we must treat the word of God. So he longs for the word. We can hear it. We can see it. Unfold your word to me. Impart wisdom, understanding to the simple. It's what he longs for. Well, look at what he says in verse 131. Here he gives us an illustration to show us how he longs. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Uh, We have a dog, but we're not very good dog owners. Just going to confess that. And some of you are going to think that's terrible. Uh, But I just got to be honest, right? We love our dog. Okay? She's a great dog. Um, But there's a few things that we love more than our dog. All right? So here's true confessions, okay? Um, I don't like hair on my clothes. If you do, praise God. You're probably just more sanctified than me, but I don't. So we have a dog that was supposed to be non-shedding. Well, guess what? She sheds. So guess what? The dog lives outside. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So our dog, our dog lives outside and in the garage. And, um, and she's a very happy dog, honestly. Um, And we, we occasionally take her out and run with her and play with her and the boys love her. Um, but there are times and the boys' chores are to feed and water the dog, right? You got to do those things for the dog. So they do that most of the time. But then we'll be like, has anybody given the dog food for a few days? <laughs> they will be like, and Hudson's going, ah, oh, dad, I'm sorry, I forgot. 
It's like, well, bud, your dog's going to die. You need to go give your dog some food, right? So it's his chore, and we're teaching him to care for the, for care, you know, to take responsibility. Uh, but water is a little bit less common than food sometimes. So we're trying to teach him, fill the water dish. Every time it's empty, fill it up. And again, sometimes it happens, and sometimes it don't. And I bring that up because here we have an imagery of an animal that's longing for water. It's, it's longing for water. And we all get that. Whether it's the tongue out and the panting, whatever. It's like this animal needs water. And the psalmist gives us a vivid illustration to say, I pant. I pant for something. Like an animal that is, is really longing for hydration. So I long for something. What does he long for? For the commandments of my God. I long for your commandments. So it's interesting. He's drawing the connection for us. Okay, connect the dots, if you will. As water is necessary for life, so the word is necessary for life. That's the connection. He's saying, have you ever been where you are just, you feel entirely dehydrated? Like there was a time I was out hiking with, with a couple guys who um, they were getting that uh, elevation uh, sickness, dehydration. So what do they do? They drink all the water, like all of it, including mine. And I'm going, great, great. We're seven miles from the car, no water, right? Because they were, they were more sick than me, right? So they, they got it. Um, if you've ever been in that scenario, you know, you, you know what it's like. Your, your body's getting weak. Your joints hurt. Your, your head is aching. And you're going, I really need water in a bad way. And the psalmist says, I long for water. Like, or as an animal longs for water, as, as we pant for water, so I long for the commandments of God. Flipping your Bible over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, the end of your scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 2, we have a, another statement in the scripture about longing for the word. 1 Peter chapter 2. He's coming off of chapter 1, and he's just talked about the, the living and abiding word of God. It's not a perishable seed, it's imperishable. It's living and abiding, and it's going to remain forever. And it's the good news that was preached to you. That's the context, the word of God. And then he says this in verse two, like newborn infants long, and I'm just going to, I'm going to take a word out, long for milk. That's the point. As a baby longs for milk. You know, after, after watching four children be born and, and just, it blows my mind, mind of the, the mind and plan of God, a baby comes out and it does two things. It breathes. It just blows. It's never breathed before. Ever. And it just, it breathes. And the lungs work. If that, doesn't, if that doesn't point to the greatness of our creator, we're missing something, right? I mean, it just blows your mind. And then it knows how to suck. It hasn't, it's never done that. Ever. It's never needed to. But it comes out instantly. Like, it knows how to latch on, Right? And, and it's, just, it's what it does. It's, it's how God created infants to have that instinctive response to suck on something for food. That's the point of 1 Peter 2. And it's just beautiful because it made sense then and it makes sense today. As a baby longs for milk. So let's fill in the, fill in the blanks. As newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. So clearly he's talking about 
newborn Christians. As a newborn infant longs for pure spiritual milk that by it it may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. How do you taste the Lord is good? Well, through the milk of the word of God. You're not going to know that God is good if you don't know the word of God. You're not going to know it. You're going to have your own idea of God. You're going to create a God in your image and in your likeness. And you're not going to know the God of this book. But here he says, as a baby longs for milk, and as it's strengthened by it, so you, newborn baby, long for the word of God and never stop longing for it. Keep running back to it because it's absolutely necessary for you to know God. You know, I think at the end of the day, we, we really don't see God or the word of God as absolutely essential for life. We really believe we can do it on our own. Don't we? Just be honest. Be honest. We don't like to say that, but isn't that the truth? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have to daily discipline myself to be in this book. And there are days that I'm not. I, I miss my time in the word. And some of you just were like, what, you're a pastor? <laughs> I'm human, all right? You human? You have to fight to be in the word of God? And you know what I'm saying in those days that I don't take the time to get into this book? I don't need it today. That's what I'm saying. I don't need it. Do you know there's not a day of my life that I've ever woken up and said I don't need food? Ever. Even when I'm sick and in bed, I want it. Right? So even if you can't eat it, what are you dreaming about? It's like, I, oh, it hurts. I want to eat, but it won't be good, so I'm not going to eat. Right? We long for it. And I really don't believe that we, we long for the scriptures because we don't believe they're essential for life. But folks, we wonder why we're broken. We wonder why life is falling apart. Go back to my, my illustration of needing water. You're You're dehydrated. You're starting to get that headache, that pounding, splitting headache. If you've ever been there, it's a horrible feeling. Your joints begin to ache. Every joint in your body, because all the water is, is out of your system, right? And you, you need water. And how foolish at that moment to say, no, nah, I'm good without it. You can die from this. No, I'm okay. I'll make it on my own. And that's what we do with the Word of God. Life's falling apart, we're broken, aches and pains are setting in, and we're like, ah, I'm okay. And it's like, no, the word of God is right here. As water nourishes your soul, so open the word and know God, and know how to walk with God. And we, in our sinful rebellion, we think we're okay. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is absolutely necessary for life. He says, when I open my mouth and pant for water, it's a desperate need, and so I long for the instructions or the commandments of God. I want to point your attention to the very last verse of this section. Remember, in Psalm 119, it's Hebrew poetry, so it is consecutive, meaning we work through the, the text, but it's also thematic, okay? There's times where in a section, he's going to bounce around a little bit. Well, he's going he's gonna, to, I want to bounce to the end and just show you how, what the longing for God's word does to him. So look at verse 136. We're, we're still on the theme of longing for the word, Okay. 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
Here we actually see a different component of longing for the word. So he's been personally longing for the word, right? He's personally longing for this word for understanding, for light, for water, for life itself. And he now says, I'm broken. I'm broken in my longing because people don't keep your law. It's interesting, we've noticed before in Psalm 119, an anger, right, over sin. We've talked about that. Hostility because of the sin around him. But here it's not hostility. Here it's weeping. The Hebrew is really intriguing. It's channels of water. That's what the word for, they tried to make it the best we could for English. But it's, my eyes have channels of water coming out of them. You ever cry that hard? where it's just channels of water running down your face. I don't believe this is hyperbolous speech. I believe he's truly broken by those around him that run from God, that have no interest in his God. It literally grieves him. Do we have sorrow over the sin around us, brothers and sisters? Because if we long for God as we should, we will sorrow at those who don't. Love and sorrow always go together. Always. Think with with me for a moment. The the, the, The greater the degree of love, the greater the degree of sorrow. Right? So when you really love someone and that person's going through suffering, what happens to you? You sorrow. If you don't sorrow, you don't have love. I heard one man put it this way. If you... When I see the news and I see an atrocity like somebody being raped, it, it disgusts me. And it should disgust you. We say, oh, it's horrible. We live in an evil world. But how about when that person is your sister? Right? Your sorrow goes to a whole new level. Right? Why? Because your love was at a whole different level. Because of the degree of your love, the offense matters a whole lot more. It's not somebody out there like, oh man, a a fellow human being is suffering. I'm saddened for that. It became immediately personal. That's what we see here. When we truly long for God and love God, we're not passe when people don't. We're broken by it. It, And we're not ticked like a theological or a, a political pundit. We're not angry and just spouting our mouths. We're broken. It causes great sorrow. So to truly love the word is to truly grieve when the word is not obeyed. And I've really come with two conclusions here on this point. If we aren't grieved when God's word and God is neglected entirely, there's two, so there's two conclusions. One, we're hard-hearted. Do you know that we are always in danger of being calloused by our society? We are. I mean, folks, watch. Be careful how you entertain yourself. You know why? Because you'll become callous to sin. So if you can watch sin without any thought that this is God-rejecting behavior, guess what? You're calloused. You've calloused your soul. If you can listen to music that just spills vulgarity, And it doesn't, you're not sitting there going, oh my goodness, God hates this. You're callous to your sin. 
So how we entertain ourselves, what we choose to listen to, it has dramatic effects on even how we can love and seek after God. So if we're not broken by the sin around us, it's possible that we're just hard-hearted. We may, you may be a Christian, but you're hard-hearted. You've allowed the evilness of society to become normal. And you know that's exactly what Satan wants for you and me? He wants the evil of the world to become normal. Because once it becomes normal, we're that much closer to walking down that path, right? If we stop agreeing with God about the heinousness of sin, we're real close to participating in that sin. And so we maybe are hard-hearted, but also folks, we need to be honest this morning. It may be that we just, it's a straight act of unbelief. Maybe you don't know him. You're religious, you're a moralist, you're here on Sunday morning, but you're not broken by the sin of society because frankly, you're, you have a heart of unbelief. You're actually kind of that one foot in, one foot out. You're like, I want the God thing, but I really, I'm really holding on to these values of the world and the ways of the world. And so I'm not grieved by the sin around me. Whatever the condition of your heart, being hard-hearted or in unbelief, folks, we want to we wanna have this response. And this is a great list, litmus test. So my challenge to you is, is if you don't respond like this, what's wrong with you? And what's wrong with me? Are you tracking? And we can't pick, pick favorites. Can I share something? I feel like the church for a long time, the American Christian church that is, we've accepted heterosexual sinful behavior while condemning homosexual sinful behavior. The Bible's against both of them. Do you agree with God? Or do you just pick your favorite? Are you willing to say, I'm grieved by sexual sin at every level because God's word is clear. He has a plan for sex and it's not what our society's doing. But are you okay with certain kinds of sexual sin and not others? Are you see what I'm saying? We can believe what culture says and say we have a hierarchy of sin. It's what the Catholic Church has done for generations, a hierarchy of sin. These are okay, these are not. And we say, no, no, I'm broken by sin. Whatever it is, right? Like last Sunday night, we had a, we had a wonderful time here dealing with, with the sins of racism that are systemic in culture. And if you weren't here, talk to me, I recorded it, and I'll get it to you. It was a wonderful time. But folks, we can't hate ra- racism and be silent on abortion. And the vice versa, we can't do it. Why? Because God hates them. So we just say, we're grieved. Well, we're gr- grieved, God, because people don't keep your law. And so, folks, we need to be a, a kind of church that so longs for the God of the word that when our culture strays from God, it breaks us. We're not calloused. We're not angry. We're not belligerent. We're broken. And folks, that's when we say we have the message of hope and it's the gospel, right? So we can grieve over the evils in society. We can have sorrow over evil and at the same, in the same breath say, oh, but there's hope in Jesus. There is deliverance in the cross. So 
in this longing for the scriptures, we see positives in 29 to 31, but maybe verse 36 might be what some might call the negative. It's the, the brokenness because he longs for God and for the word. So the first statement this morning is we must, um, we must long for the word. That's, that's, I hope you see that. Excuse me, longing for scripture. But this is beautiful where he takes us in verse 32 to 35 is that when we long for the word, you'll know the goodness of God. You'll know the goodness of God. And again, we want the goodness of God, but we want it the easy way. Everybody wants God to be good to them. I mean, stop a random person on the street. If you just said, hey, do you want God to be good to you? Probably going to get a yes or a, if there is a God, yes. Everybody wants God to be good to them. We just wanted to find it on our terms, not his. And here we see the connection is vital when you, when you long for the word, when you go to the scriptures, you know the goodness of God. So let's walk through it together. We actually see four imperatives, if you will, four commands, verse 132 to 135. And in my translation, and probably in yours, you'll see four strong commands. Turn to me, keep steady, redeem me, make your face shine upon me. Those are what we are called imperatives in the Hebrew language, okay? Which is interesting because here we see the psalmist, hear me right, commanding God. But, but we're going to notice, how does he command God? Because we're, we're not God, we don't command him. But he does it based on the revealed promises of Scripture. That's how he can go to God with the confidence of God, do this. Not because I had some funky dream, but because I found it in this book. And so I'm going to come to you and cry out to you to do something that it's in accordance with your character and your revealed word. So we see the goodness of God revealed in four imperative requests, okay? So let's walk through these four requests. The first thing in 132 is the demand for grace. This is glorious. He says in verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Just very quickly, we see an implied humility, don't we? When you ask God for grace, what does it mean? I need you. I need you. I don't have all the answers. And frankly, to, have, to get his grace is to get what? the unmerited favor of God, something you don't deserve. So he's saying, God, God, turn to me and be gracious to me. And we're not going to go back to there because we've already done it in Psalm 119. But the few times we see this idea of turn to me in the ancient Near East culture was the idea of a sovereign giving favor to somebody who is lesser than him. So we, we looked last time at the, at the book of, of um, Esther. Remember that? And we talked about Esther going before the king, but still needing what? The king to turn to her and show favor. In that context, it was that he raised his scepter. But that was the idea. Turn to me, because if the king doesn't turn to me, I don't know favor, I know condemnation. So here, the psalmist is saying, God of heaven, turn to me, and show me grace, because if you don't turn to me, I'm a mess. If you don't turn to me, I deserve the judgment of God. 
If you don't turn to me, I don't have understanding and I desperately need you. So God, turn to me and give me grace. But what is again wonderful is he said, turn to me and be gracious to me. And let's just read this section, as is your way. We'll finish the verse in a second. But here, the character of God is known from the word of God. He says, God, you're a God who delights in what? Grace and mercy. Do we believe that God is going to judge the wicked? We believe that? We should. The Bible teaches it. It's not a popular doctrine today. It's being denied left and right. There are supposed evangelical theologians coming up and saying, oh, the same old heresies of days gone by, annihilationism, variations of a purgatory system, well, they'll be judged for a while but redeemed one day. And we see throughout scripture that God will categorically and eternally judge the wicked. And as human beings, we struggle with some of those things because frankly, we don't understand the mind of God. But we see it throughout scripture. So we do believe that God judges mankind for their sin. But you know what we see in scripture? The consistent theme is that God delights in mercy. Delights in it. He delights in it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and come talk to me afterwards. But scripture says that God does not delight in the death of who? The wicked. Why? Because he longs to be gracious. We see here a God who weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because he longs for their repentance. We see this character of God that is just full of mercy, full of compassion, longing for people to repent. Folks, why hasn't Jesus returned? Because God is being patient with sinners. He's enduring longer because when he returns, there's no more salvation. So he is enduring so that more will be saved. We see the character of God is so replete in scripture as one of being gracious and the psalmist knows this and so he just says, turn to me God and be gracious because that is your way. But what's just the kicker is this, with those who love your name. Fidelity to God matters. Running to God matters. Siding with God matters. Listen to Psalm 69, 36. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him. By the way, if, if we were old covenant, that was us. We're the foreigners, okay? We're not, we're not Jews by birth, we're foreigners. Here's a category for God to show mercy to foreigners, okay? He says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. But what, was, what is the statement about our hearts, the heart of the foreigner. To love the name of the Lord. A heart that has responded in repentance and faith and loves the name of the Lord. You see, the sad reality for many of us today is we long for the gracious kindness of God while we run from him at the same time. Folks, do you not, do you see that that's, not, that's nowhere in this book? Now, in the gospel, do we see God abundantly gracious to rebellious sinners? Amen and amen. And if you don't say amen, then you may not be regenerate. Because at some point, you have to realize I am running from God and I'm saved. 
It was his sovereign grace. He opened my blinded eyes. I'm redeemed. Praise God. We do believe in a God who I would tell people he runs faster than you. He will chase you down. Right? He, and when he is ready to save you, you will be saved. We, we hold to that and we believe that. But folks, so often, those who profess to be saved by that gospel are the same ones who say, I'm going to live my wicked reprobate life. Oh, and God, show me grace. Uh, that's not how it works. And as we're going to see in a moment, saving grace is always transforming grace. If you're truly born again, you will love Christ. You will long to live for God. If you don't, you're not born again. And so here we see the psalmist say, be gracious to me as is your way with a particular group of people. And who are those people? Who is God gracious to? Those who love your name, right? So he's saying, God be gracious. But as we've seen over and over in Psalm 119, what's the heart of the psalmist? I want to walk with you. God, I want to keep my way pure. Help me do it. And we cannot run from God and then say, God bless me. Now folks, hear me and hear me well. What I am not saying, (coughs) you're running from God. You're running from God. God stops you. You're a Christian, okay? You're a Christian. You're living in rebellion. God stops you. And at that moment you say, Lord, I know that you're just in your judgments, but please show me mercy. I know that I deserve all of these things that my sin has done. Please be gracious to me. That's what we call repentance. We love repentance. What, we're, what he's saying here is you're actively running, you're actively going your own way, and you want his grace. He says that's not how it works. He says, God be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. And we know, we know that's the conclusion because look at the next verse. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. What's the character of one who loves his name? <laughs> Here we see the demand for help in holy living. He demands, remember the commands, he's commanding, he's saying, God, do this, I desperately need you to do this. This is like a command of a person falling over a cliff and screaming for help, right? Throw me a rope, that's, that's, that's the idea of this command. He says, Lord, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Help me walk with God. Once again, we have this humble posture. He's not arrogant, beating his own chest. I'm the man. I did it. I'm godly. Lord, if you don't keep steady my steps, I will wander away. Remember the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isn't isn't that not your testimony every day? Like, as a child of God, I go my own way. And so I come back and I say, Lord, keep steady my steps. But look at the faith The faith of this response. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Here we see, and this was this verse was really kind of mind-blowing to me this week, because here we really get to the heart of a life of faith. Taking God at his word. Church, do you take God at his word? 
Let me ask you a different question. Do you live as though you take God as his word? It's easy to say, oh yeah, I take God at his word. But do you live like it? Do you live in those moments where you say, <laughs> straight up, this book makes no sense. Like, God just said that a soft answer turns away wrath and it ain't working because you don't live with my wife. Right? We laugh, but isn't that true? It ain't working in my house. It's not working in my job. God, I know what you say, but I know better than you. And we have all the excuses. We come up, my circumstances are different. God, I'm not sure you're, I mean, oh, I, I know the word of God is the word of God, but it's pretty old. And all the things we say to not walk by faith, right? And here he says, Lord, keep steady my steps. The idea of a, of a, um, a boat being tied to the dock. Tie me off and don't let me move. Hold me onto this dock no matter what. Well, what are the tethers that hold him to the dock? The promises of God. You don't hold to the promises of God, you're going to be out adrift on your own. You're going to be thinking you know better, being tossed to and fro by the waves of life, smashed against the rocks, and it's going, hey, God will help you. The promises of God are here for you. They'll help keep steady your steps. And we don't live that life of faith. We go our own way. If we had time, we could walk through Hebrews 11 this morning, right? Faith is not what we see, but it's what's unseen, right? Faith is the steadfast confidence of the child of God and the word of God. I love that definition of faith. A steadfast confidence of the child of God and what? The word of God. That's what faith is. So he says, Lord, keep steady my steps according to your word, your promises. If you don't know the promises of God, your steps will not remain steady. It's impossible. You can't do it. So that goes back to, we need the word of God, right? The whole, we were longing for the word of God. And as you long for the word, you know the goodness of God. If you don't long for the word, you'll never know that goodness. One of the goodnesses of God is the steadying of your steps. But it's through what? The promises of this book. So he says, long for the word. And when you do, you know the promises of God and they stabilize your life in a good and glorious way. But look at what he goes on to say. He says, God, keep steady my steps according to your promise. And again, he's admitting his own proneness to wander. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. He is unwilling to submit to the tyranny of sin. Do you know that sin, sin is a tyrannical master? I think Pastor Ernie has this written on the wall of his office. It's a quote I, I've read in various places. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go and costs you more than you want to pay. Right? Sin always takes you farther than you want to go and costs you more than you want to pay. So it's a tyrannical master. Right? Just like Adam and Eve, just eat the fruit. It looks good to the eye. It's no big deal. Oh, it was a big deal, all right. Isn't that what our sin is? It's no big deal. It's okay. You'll be fine. I mean, you know what? I know that when this person did that and that person did that and every other person that did that, it destroyed their life. It won't destroy yours. Isn't that true? You know, drug addiction is a great example of all of, for all of us regarding sin. It really is. And I'm gonna, I want to talk about that briefly, not to pick on anybody here who either has been or is struggling with a, a life-dominating addictive sin. But the life of a person who has consumed their life with, with drugs. 
apart from God's grace, that life tanks, correct? correct? Society knows it. A secular society knows it. You can look at pictures. You can look at case studies. Everybody knows it. But what does sin tell us? It won't happen to me. I mean, I know that everybody else who does this substance, their life is destroyed. I'll make it. Isn't that, I mean, that's what sin tells us. So we can look at drug addiction and say, oh yeah, it's, it's clear over there. Folks, it's clear with everything in your life and my life. You think you can be an angry parent and be okay. It'll destroy your family. It'll push your children away from Jesus every time. But you think you're okay, right? Oh, you just went from drug addiction to anger? Yeah, yeah, that's what sin does. We can't pick our favorites, right? So it takes you farther than you want to go. Oh, I just have a little lust problem. Really? Well, how does God deal with little lust problems? He doesn't really categorize them as little or big. He just says you're a fornicator and repent. Right? So we think, oh, I just have a little one. It's okay. No, no, it's always going to take you farther than you want to go and always cost you more than you want to pay. Why? Because the goal of sin is always the same. To, to have dominion over you. And what does the psalmist pray for? Oh God, don't let, have, don't let iniquity get dominion over me. Folks, if we mean that prayer, you'll hate sin at the smallest levels. You'll hate it at the smallest level. So, it's no secret. Go back in the scriptures. What has God used to destroy godly men, or what has Satan used to destroy godly men for all of time? Sexual immorality, correct? You guys, are you tracking with me? Just read your Bible. It's kind of gross sometimes. So guess what, for, for me, I read the scriptures and I go, oh my goodness, do I really think that I'm a better man? And you start going down the list, right? Now some of you are going to be uncomfortable by this, but you, you need to hear it, okay? So I read my Bible and I say, godly man after godly man failing in sexual sin. So men here, what should we do? You should run the other direction, and I mean run so hard that that sin can't touch you. Because the moment you begin to think, ah, it's no big deal. Yeah, Solomon's coming. Right? It's no big deal. I can handle this. Whenever a brother says to me regarding lustful sin, I can handle it, what I know he means is I've already succumbed and I enjoy it. So when he says I can watch that and it doesn't offend me, well, it's just because you've seared your conscience. You've already succumbed to that measure of sin that you're okay with it. Folks, this is, this is the reality. If we're going to say, like, like the psalmist, God, don't listen to have dominion over me. I'm not asking how much sin can I enjoy. I'm asking how far can I stay away from it. See the difference? What we do is I'm going to tiptoe close to that edge because I really want to be, I really want a little bit of that. And he says, God, I don't want, I don't want it to have dominion over me. Oh, that I would run the other direction. So as an illustration, I just elaborated on lustful sin, which applies to men and women, by the way. But what is it for you? What is the sin that if you really prayed this and said, oh God, don't let sin have dominion over me, that you'd have to say, I have to run. I met a man, actually growing up with a man, he was the parent of one of my friends. He was an alcoholic for many years. And I know some people kick alcoholism and they never attempted to go back. Well, not this guy, right? It was a daily battle for him. He loved football and he loved beer. So guess what? In order to stay sober, what did he do? Stop watching football. Because football and beer went together. 
So you might say, oh, that's legalism. No, that's godliness. He said, I love Jesus, and I don't want sin to have dominion over me, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to eradicate evil from my life. And that's been the heart of the psalmist over and over. Oh, God, I want to walk in purity before you. And yes, it's by grace, and yes, it's by your mercy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight by your mercy and fight by your grace. And so he pleads with God, don't let sin have dominion over me. Psalm 19.13, the psalmist said, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Jump forward a thousand years to Romans chapter six. Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you would obey its passions. We see this all over scripture. Don't let sin reign. Why? Because Jesus is reigning. And if Jesus is reigning, light and darkness can't exist together. So if he's on the throne of your life, sin can't be. And if sin's on the throne of your life, Jesus can't be. It's that simple. And he says, God, don't let sin have dominion over me. And may we be such a church that cries out and says, don't let sin have dominion. We need to keep moving. Hear the next plea, if you will. The next cry to God is to redeem me to redeem me. And this could be a sermon in and of itself because redemption is a major theme of scripture. It's, we see it all over the law, especially in the prophets, but we see the redemption of people, the redemption of land, the redemption of sacrifices, everything. It, you, there's a category for re- of redemption for so many things and, the, and it was all pointing us in one direction. <laughs> you need to be bought back from the slave market of sin. That was all the redemption passages are going to one apex. His name is Jesus. One mountaintop, if you will. Going up, redemption, Messiah. You need to be redeemed. You can't redeem yourself. And so here we see again the psalmist, I think, elaborating on his cry of verse 132. He said in 132, turn to me and be gracious. Well, an element of God's graciousness is redemption. So he says, God, redeem me. Redeem me by your grace, because redemption is never earned. You don't earn the favor of God. When a slave was redeemed in the ancient Near East culture, even the biblical culture, it wasn't their own doing. It was somebody else, right, that did the act of redemption. Here he says, God, I, I, I need to be redeemed. I need you to, to pull me out, to save me, where, what? From the oppression of those around me. We've dealt many times with the oppression of the psalmist. He's oppressed by his sinfulness, but he's also oppressed by an evil world that hates his God. Indirectly and directly. And so he says, I'm in this world and and I, I want you to redeem me. Draw me out of it. Don't let me live in the muck and mire of this society. Similar to 2 Samuel 7, verse 23. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out people or driving out before your people when you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. He brought them out for himself, doing awesome things to display his power. So we see he cries out for redemption because he can't do it on his own. And then, but look at where he goes. This is one of those if this was a human book, we wouldn't write it this way. He says, redeem me that I may keep your precepts. So here he says, redeem me for the purpose of obedience. (laughs) See, here's what we do, folks. God, redeem me because my life stinks. 
Help me out right now because I'm just having a bad day. You know, God, whatever, you know, redeem so that I'm happy. Redeem me so that my problems go away. And here he says, redeem me, why? Because I have one great objective, to obey you. And it's hard to obey you under the oppression of this world, so redeem me that I can obey you. (laughs) Divine intervention, these acts of God in redemption, they always move towards what I call practical worship. Every time. And practical worship is simply living for him. I mean, just... Let's go to a New Testament context, one that you know well, don't even turn there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Anybody remember verse 10? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Why did he redeem you? To live a life for the glory of God. And in Ephesians 2, he calls it good works. In Psalm 119, he, he calls it that I, may keep your, or that I may keep your precepts. But redemption is connected to obedience. And we miss it all the time. We just want God to give us a good life now theology. And he says, no, I redeemed you for a purpose that you would be a set apart people for me which means you live for me. Is it a struggle? Absolutely. But it's what we're called to. And so he says, I I want your redemption for the sake of living for you. So here again, just we see gospel grace, redeeming grace, always has an ethical effect on those who receive it. Meaning you'll live for God. Every time. When you're transformed by his grace, or when you're saved by his grace, you're transformed by his grace. And then we're going to finish with verse 135. He returns, he says, redeem me, give me grace, oh, that I would live for you. And he kind of repeats what he said in 132, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Here we see what what I call the favor of God. He just demands the favor of God. Now, Some of you may have come from theological backgrounds where the word favor was abused a little bit. Everybody would talk about the favor of God almost in a, a, uh, well, not almost, in an abusive, man-centered way, right? The favor of God. Oh, you have the favor of God. But here he's actually saying, God, show me favor. Show me favor because I'm your servant and I want to know you. So here again, I'm struggling. That's why he asked for favor. I mean, if you, if you can connect the dots here, 129 to 131, he's longing, and the next four verses, he's expressing dependence. Why? Because even in his longing, he needs God. So he's longing for him, but he desperately needs him. So he cries out for favor, because if he doesn't have the favor of God, he's helpless in his pursuit. Church, I am a terrible artist. I really am. I, if, I, I get like sweaty palms if I have to like do diagrams in front of an audience because I, I'm, I can't draw a stick figure. My circles look like ovals. I'm not a good artist. If you were to task me and say, hey, you have a week to, to create something beautiful, art, beautifully artistic, I would be first paranoid. And secondly, I would run to anybody who had an inkling of talent and say, help me. Because I don't have that talent. Here you see the psalmist, I want to do this. 
God, if you don't turn to me and show me favor, I can't. I need, I need the presence of God. I need the favor of God. Make your face shine upon me. Listen to Numbers 6, 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to what? Shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Again, the idea, if God turns his face towards you, you know his grace. That's the point. When he turns towards you, it is a gracious thing. And so he longs for such grace. And then he says this in in closing, He says, your favor that you give to your servant, it teaches me. It instructs me. Why do we need that instruction? We'll go back to verse 29. Because your words are wonderful, I want to keep them. Or my soul keeps them. And your word gives understanding and light to the simple. Well, what does that mean I desperately need? I need to be taught by God. So he's he's already navigated that for us. And he goes right back at the end and says, make your face shine upon me so that I can know you, that you would teach me. And again, the sad truth is that we don't often want to be taught. We simply want God to do it for us, right? We don't want God to teach us. We want God to actually just do it. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to turn to you and be gracious. And I'm going to teach you from my word of me that you would both know me and live for me. And then he's glorified in our obedience. So he says, says, I'm going to teach you Know me that you can walk with me. Church, do we see the connection that when you long for God, you know the goodness of God? It's all over this section of scripture. He, is, he pleads with four imperative requests to know the goodness of God. That's what he's doing. He's saying, God, be good to me. Turn to me. Help me stay faithful. Redeem me. Shine your face upon me all because he knows that to be true from the scriptures. One of the things that really breaks my heart is when I'm talking to a believer and they hold on to hope that's not in this book. And I mean that, and it it happens. And I try to lovingly come around that person and say, well, let's find the promises here. But maybe you've heard that, right? Somebody who is broken by something and they say, oh, well, well, God promised me that this will happen. And it's not a promise in this book. My heart is broken for them because they're actually holding on to a promise that God didn't promise. Because his promises are here. And I'm not saying that he can't do something else that's not in this book, but these are the promises we hold on to. Not, not a vision or a dream or some sermon or radio clip you heard or a friend who says, I have a word from the Lord for you. These are the promises of God. And when these are the promises that we long for, guess what, church? you will know in a radical way the goodness of God. Not some fictitious goodness that you've created, but the authentic goodness of a good and gracious God who longs to care for you. So may we be a church that longs for the word, and in that longing we know the goodness of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need to seek you rightly. So my prayer for this church this morning is that you would help us Seek you rightly. And in that seeking, in that longing, may we know the manifold and abundant goodness of God. And in Christ's name, amen.